<clears throat> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, children. Um, my name is Garrett, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. And I'm in a state of total petrification. And I, I normally uh, enjoy very much sharing my experience, strength, and hope, uh, often what little there is of it, but I do enjoy uh, sharing at meetings. And uh, last night I said to Bruce... Uh, that I was praying for a stroke, a mild one, uh, but if they couldn't get into my room this morning, that he should give my pitch for me this morning. Uh, and my, my, it's, it's all ego. It's all ego. I said to Gary Nye sitting there, I'd be all right if I can only get my ego out of the way between the time I leave the table and I get up here, uh, and then I can become the, the Charlie McCarthy for God, you know, the ventriloquist dummy for God. To allow God to speak through me, to me, and to you, in line with the uh, the eleventh uh, step of our our program. I I came uh, to the meeting. It's been a wonderful meeting. I want to thank everybody that's had anything to do with putting it together. It really has been a totally pleasurable and delightful experience. Um, except that yesterday I began to feel quite literally as if I were on death row. I, I didn't feel as if I were going to be executed, but images of death row began to come to me as I was be sitting quietly meditating. And again, it is ego, the thing that I've struggled with all my life, what Gordy was talking about last night, the fear of failure. Uh, just uh, Rick Levine a moment ago said, well, what Ronald Lane, the great Scottish psychiatrist, used to do would be to meditate before a talk and not be concerned about how it turned out, good or bad. Well, that's Ronald Lane, that's not me. Uh, because at the moment I'm very concerned about how this uh, talk will turn out, uh, especially as a couple of years ago, four or five years ago, in Minneapolis, I thought I had a disaster. When on the Saturday night, which is supposed to be an uplifting, wonderful talk, I got into some kind of deep, dark black hole and couldn't get myself out of it and cremated in shame for a month afterwards of feeling I'd failed and exceeded the violations of good taste and propriety by talking about intimate sexuality in a room like this, and um, until my great friend Max Schneider, a month later, everything comes around, called me from Kennedy Airport on his way to um, to Russia. He was going with a group of people to talk about alcoholism in Russia. And he called me to say that he had met a man there, one of his group, who said, just quite casually, that a month ago in Minneapolis he'd heard a guy talk, and it was the best talk he ever heard in AA, and it has helped him so much, and so on and so forth. And that liberated me because I had a positive judgment, liberated me from really a month of pain and anguish and a feeling of, of failure. And all of that is ego, and that is why I'm in, an a in AA to try and um, overcome uh, that terrible sense of ego. It happened yesterday again. I, I was listening to Lauren and uh, uh, thinking I'm going to call my wife and issue a, a proposal of marriage to Lauren and tell my wife I wouldn't be home. I was going to make other life arrangements if I could get <laughs> Lauren to marry me. But her wondrous, brilliant, uh, innocent, uh, sophisticated, conceptual, intellectual sharing was, was truly a, a, a miracle to my ears. And I, and I, I sat there in wonder and awe and, and love of that young woman and, and, and wished her all the best. And then, 
Heather came along and, and she was wonderful and I loved her too. And then hatred began to set in just at the end because I've got to follow those people and again my ego began to burgeon and uh, how could I perform and outperform them because they had managed to get your love and acceptance and how would I do that? And so I go into a sort of spiral of um, obsession. And then Gordy last night gets up, you know, and just uh, says... Uh, what it was like, what happened, and, and what it's like now, and a wonderful spiritual, I found, speech, and talking about his life being driven by failure, and a fear of failure, and then talking about a wonderfully successful life, indeed, and um, and at the end had the, had the, the, the sense of humility uh, to talk about the chair that had been established in his name, and to talk about the wondrous things that he had achieved despite the destructive impact of alcoholism and I then I just went into a total dungeon of uh, <laughs> despair <laughs> so I mean I live a lot of my life in this kind of maniacal um, uh, set of excursions between good and bad performance and judgment it's all about judgment how will I be judged and how do I judge myself I mean here I have to place trust in the erroneous judgment of my dear friend Jim and his committee, who has made a serious misjudgment of my spirituality, because quite literally, quite literally, quite literally, and I don't mean this in any sense of false modesty, I am the least, if I wanted to have somebody talk on spirituality, I would be the last person I would ask. Because I haven't the faintest idea what spirituality is. Uh, it can't be defined. It's, it's, it's like health. Everybody has it. Some of good health, some of bad health, some of in-between, but everybody has spirituality, whatever it is, an indefinable, ineffable life force of some sort uh, that, that keeps us going. And it can be good spirituality, leading to creativity and, and openness and, and connection, or it can be bad spirituality, leading to isolation. Uh, it can be the spirituality that, is, that, that brings us closer to God as we understand him, maybe whatever that is. And it can be a spirituality that brings us closer to being subhuman and, and beastly, whatever that is. There is a wonderful quote somewhere which says, trying to define human beings. And it says, I think uh, we, are, uh, we, are, we are less than the gods uh, and more than the beasts, but somewhere part of both. And I think that's a wonderful definition because... It, 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 and I wander from godliness to beastliness and somewhere try to tread the narrow path of being human. And to be human, I think, uh, not being God, being less than God and being more than the beasts, uh, brings up the whole thing of imperfection. And that the greatest mistake in life that one can make is to try to be perfect. Uh, because that is to try to be either less than or more than human, which is inhuman. And much of my life uh, has, in a way, been spent uh, doing things that are not quite human, less than human, more than human, but certainly not accepting the flaws and imperfections uh, that I have because of what the consequences of that acceptance would be. I was brought up as an Irish Catholic, and for shame and guilt and judgment uh, were the order of the day. And I, I grew, grew up in that 
with the terrible fear of the day of judgment when I alone, like Hitler at Nuremberg, just one person and millions staring down, guardian angels with testaments of my faults and sins and crimes, all reporting to God who would ultimately make a judgmental decision about what my future would be, hell or heaven. Or the, we have, uh, Irish Catholicism is a little bit like alcoholism. There's always a softer, easier way if you know how to thread your way through the system. And uh, I had my first conscious contact. I, it's in, I should say, I grew up in an alcoholic family, in an alcoholic neighborhood, in an alcoholic country. And uh, there was a statistically a very good chance that I too, when I grew up, whatever I would be, would be an alcoholic. Whatever I would be, doctor, fireman, priest, whatever it might be. And uh, alcohol, as, uh, as you'll hear, certainly uh, has had a profound impact on my family, a family I came from, the families I created, and on me, myself, and, and those that are following. Uh, it has been the central theme, the spine of my whole existence, uh, as it is for my country, which is represented here, um, the green, white, and orange of, of Ireland, of which I am deeply uh, proud. But I had my first conscious contact with God, I think, or effort at it. Uh, and I hope this doesn't offend any of the children in the audience, uh, but uh, they run into it themselves sooner or later. Uh, sex and, and, and self-abuse was the, 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 the governing principle of my early life because we were told that if we died in a state of mortal sin, which is a very serious situation in the Catholic Church, if we died in a state of mortal sin, you go straight to hell. I mean, there's no negotiation. There's, there's no committee that you can go to or anything. You just go straight to hell if you... And if you're struck by lightning or hit by a truck, you will go straight to hell because there's no time. Well, being devious from the very beginning, I tried to figure out a way because I, as you might imagine, in my young days, was in a constant state of mortal sin. Um, you, can, you can go to confession. And you can confess your sins to the priest and you're, 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 you're salved for the time being. Uh, but that, for me, would last about 20 minutes on the way home. I would get back into my state of mortal sin behind a bush or something like that because of uh, the... <laughs> the, <laughs> the uh, yeah, so it was very difficult uh, because I lived in a state of constant fear of failure and certain judgment of hell. So anyway, I got a stopwatch. Because we have in the Catholic faith the act of contrition. It's a wonderful prayer. Which says, if, even no matter how deep your mortal sin is, Hitler could have got out of this. If he'd only been able to say, and after, oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. And that gets you, you go straight. You might have to go to purgatory to serve a sort of partial probationary sentence of a hundred thousand years or so. Uh, and then you get to heaven. And a hundred thousand years compared to eternity is nothing. So, but I had this, I had this active contrition business, and I had bolts of lightning and trucks. And I remember living in Ireland, I thought it was a great place to live because there wasn't much gasoline during the war and there weren't too many trucks, and therefore the statistical chance of being hit by a truck was less, and uh, I was in less danger. So I got a stopwatch, because I wondered, like, you know the old medieval argument about how many angels can stand on the head of a pin? Well, I had to figure out how much of the act of contrition did you have to say for it to qualify? Because I should add that in the Catholic Church we have guardian angels who are assigned for lifetime to you. And they have notes. They're fluttering there like hummingbirds or helicopters over <laughs> you all the time. They know everything, inside, outside, 
into everything about you and they make notes for this final day of judgment because God is very busy. He can't look into everybody all the time so he has these kind of angelic secretaries, uh, <laughs> cynical record keepers of every sin. And they're supposed to write down like a fourth step the good stuff as well, but I think they mainly focus on the bad stuff. Uh, so I, I said, well, if I just get this stopwatch, I'll see how much of the act of contrition goes. I figured if you got hit by a truck, well, oh my God, I'm hardly sure. It took eight, 8.3 seconds to say the whole thing. So I said, I'm in real trouble here with my conscious contact with God via the archangel, my guardian angel, because if I get hit, well, I'm going to be dead within 0.7 of a second. So I said, well, maybe you don't have to say the whole thing, because we have another easy way out, intention in the Catholic Church. If you intend to do something, that kind of is noted by the guardian angel and you get credit. And so, oh my God, I want to... Well, that took 1.7 seconds. It was still too long. But I wanted to make sure she knew I was doing this, using the law, the letter of the law, and that she wasn't distracted or anything like that. So I... Oh my God! So that was 1.1, and then, oh! And then I said, well, maybe you wouldn't have time to get a breath, and And she'd see the open mouth and know that it was going down. And I'd get the act of contrition in, and then then I would would go to purgatory, serve my time, and then go straight to to heaven for eternity. Well, I couldn't work it out because there was still that last moment that she might not see, so... As an early way of seeking conscious contact with God is according to the 11th step, which I would meet some 50 years later in my life, I devised the following thing, that in my school, where it was a boarding school, the same one as James Joyce went to, uh, during uh, the commission of the sin of self-abuse at night, I would actually say the entire act of contrition (laughs) while I was committing the sin, thereby bringing both together, and for fear, through the excitement of an orgiastic excitement, I might have a heart attack, I would just go straight to heaven. So, that took about a year and a half. It was an early experiment in preventative medicine. And and it it did keep me alive. And, And abusing myself in different ways for the rest of my life. Uh, the one thing that we have to fear most of all in Ireland is not fear, but success. Uh, because to succeed in a post-colonial country is the uh, greatest sin that you can commit. Uh, because we are brought up, in a sense, uh, to failure. And I left my room this morning, and I was just coming along, I suddenly realized, and I looked down, and I couldn't find myself. I didn't have this little notice telling me who I was. And I had a kind of a panic attack, should I go back to the room, and I did to find my little identity, because I I was fearful coming down here. And I found my identity tucked into a book that I bought in the bookstore yesterday or the day before, called The Spirituality of Imperfection. Now, I had planned to tell you that I had invented that term, because I like to take credit, knowing about the judgment that's going on for everything. And furthermore, I'm a a liar. (laughs) And uh, a skillful one at that. I can manipulate information in ways that you don't know. And I used to, when I would pitch at at AA, I'd say, I'm going to do my best to tell you the truth, but I can give no guarantee to you that what I say will be the truth. Because stories that I tell may be stories that um, 
I heard about other people and liked them and admired them and they fitted into the image that I wanted to create in the world and gradually I'd tell that story about somebody else and gradually the somebody else would vanish and that person would become me and I would tell the story as if it were me and then after five or six tellings it was me because I had the whole scenario, the script and I could remember exactly what happened and the person to whom the actual events occurred had long since vanished into the distance of my narcissistic horizon and it was me and so I suddenly realized after many many episodes of this that when I was trying to talk about me I was talking about other people but aspects of them that I had absorbed into myself and were now purveying on the public market as if they were me because they that was the person I wanted to convey to you and of course it, it, the result was that you wouldn't know who I was talking about and the problem was that I wouldn't know who I was talking about either. And so in this is, you see, what the, 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 the erroneous judgment of, um, of, of Jim when he says that he called me and he wants to hear the truth. Um, that is the most dangerous thing for me to hear. Because in the last few days, I've just been wandering around the corridors here, I have heard myself described and people have actually said to me, you're an icon in this field. I can feel my ego sort of just, the helium has been pumped into the hot air balloon as I hear that. I'm an icon. Well, I do. I con people all the time. <laughs> uh, including myself. And then they say, I heard somebody said, introduce me as a guru. And so I said, well, I can guru. Can you? Jumping and leaping from place to place, never being still, having a secret pouch into which I am hidden as a baby kangaroo, my inner kangaroo. So, but the point I'm saying is that I, I, I get pumped up in this way, and the great danger I'm in is that I might begin to believe what I hear about myself. And that's what that ego is that gets between me and the voice of God. And as soon as I'm, I'm, I'm in that place, I am repudiating God and repudiating the gifts that I have been given in life. Because I do have gifts. I, I have a healer's gift, I think. But it is a gift that, that is a source of terror for me. Because I don't understand it. I can't describe it. I can't write it down. I can't teach it. But I know it's there because the outcome is there time and time and time again. But each time I approach a healing situation, one where I am expected to heal, I am in this state of petrification and terror no matter how often I do it. Because I do not know if I will be able to get out of the way in a clinical encounter with a patient. I am a psychiatrist. In a clinical encounter with a patient, another suffering alcoholic, I will be able to get out of the way and allow God to exercise the chemistry in that encounter with the patient that will bring about the healing. And how to get me out of the way, my ego, is my great challenge. And to allow the gift that I have uh, to operate in its best and most constructive healing way. Now, Jim, Jim Tracy has talked, whom I admire more than anything, about his tendency to destroy things, good things that he creates. And uh, I share that, that view. All my life I've been on the brink of creating good things and then I do something to destroy them. And that's why I think that this disease that, that I have and that so many of us here have is a disease of belonging. 
AA is the only organization that I know of that I have ever belonged and really felt I belonged in, including the families I grew up with and the families I have created. I didn't know when I came to this country that the INS, the, the, the internal, uh, um, whatever it is, the nationalization service, put your personality diagnosis on your green card. But on my green card, it says, clearly written, resident alien. <laughs> and that describes me exactly. And an alien being a stranger, a stranger wherever you go and how I always felt, and still do to a great extent, a stranger, except when I come into AA. Because then I am here, not despite my imperfections, but because of my imperfections, because of my humanity, because to be human is to be imperfect. And to try and embrace those imperfections is, uh, is my task as a recovering alcoholic and using the 12 steps to do that. I... Uh, Years ago, when I was a young psychiatrist at uh, Johns Hopkins, when I came to this country first, in 1961, there was a seminar. And the seminar consisted of mostly Jewish psychoanalysts who had fled Hitler's Germany in the 30s and come to this country to seek sanctuary, and had stayed here and, and, and largely at that time dominated American psychiatry. Now, I remember one of those seminars, it was during the trial of Adolf Eichmann in, uh, in Jerusalem. As you remember, he was captured by the Israeli Secret Service and brought to trial for crimes against humanity. He was the architect, uh, the, the man who implemented with others the uh, Nazi Holocaust against the Jews and many others as well. And his trial was on and they were having this seminar and this very stereotypical Viennese Jewish psychiatrist who had lost... Uh, numbers of his family who had stayed on in Vienna and had been uh, taken to the camps and murdered and slaughtered and exterminated. He said, you know, we were young residents sitting there, and I'll never forget this because it, it had a turning point in my life and it operates here as I am speaking to you today. Uh, and I didn't realize that, of course, for many, many years after that. But he said, you know, he said, our task as psychoanalysts thinking of what is going on in Jerusalem at this moment, is to find the Eichmann within each one of us. The enormity of that statement. A Jew, most of whose family had been destroyed by Eichmann, was saying his task was to find the Eichmann within me. And ever since then, um, it began to percolate in my mind. It came back to me when I entered Alcoholics Anonymous and I was struggling with myself and the 12 steps and trying to stay sober and everything else. That that statement had some profound importance, that there is an Eichmann within each one of us. For you, it might be somebody else. Uh, at one point, I thought, I have to find the Margaret Thatcher within me. <laughs> the embodiment of evil, not Margaret Thatcher personally, but the embodiment of evil with respect to Irish nationalism and the colonial situation and our relationship with Britain. That to me was profoundly evil and I still have not been able to find 
and not only find, but learn to love and cherish the Margaret Thatcher within me. Because that man in Baltimore, it was more than finding the Iceman. It was not only that, it was finding the Iceman within him and then learning to love and cherish that aspect of him which was the thing he would despise the most of all in others. And that is, I think, the bridge between the bestial and the godliness. Somewhere in between we are, partly beast, partly god, mostly human, mostly flawed. Could I be an Iceman? Could I be a Thatcher? We are all children of God. Yes, I could. I first saw that tape, I think, about 10 or 12 years ago in Marin County. I think, Rick, you were at the conference. And somebody played it, and I was to talk <clears throat> halfway through the morning. Um, and I was standing in for somebody else, a very spiritual man, the pastor of the church in downtown um, 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 who is a truly pioneer and a missioner and a spiritual man and he was ill he was having surgery and there was some concern for his life and I was asked to give a talk to take his place and as I was giving the talk whatever it was I don't remember that tape had been played earlier in the morning by somebody and I had I wept during it I was terribly moved by it and uh, I, I didn't know why but I was and I wept and then I went about my business of giving my talk and halfway through the talk suddenly it hit me and I stopped my talk and I said to the, to the audience do you do something the matter with that tape it was a wonderful tape and I wept and I said there's something the matter with it and I couldn't understand for the moment what was the matter with the tape and then it suddenly hit me do you remember the image at the end of the world earth first one that was ever taken and it's in every one of us spirituality and those images beauty sadness pain suffering joy and I suddenly said if all of those things are something missing I said where is Hitler where is Eichmann where are all the people we call evil in the world aren't they also children of God and shouldn't they be on that tape too And that next to hearing about Eichmann from that analyst in Baltimore were the two most important moments in terms of my own spiritual evolution or development. Because I realized again that the issue of the Eichmann, the Thatcher, the whatever it may be in me, that that's what I have to be in touch with and to cherish to become whole. I cannot avoid that. I cannot because it is in all of us. We are all built fundamentally the same way as children of God. And so when I think of a terrorist, we are all educated now to know so much about terrorism and the terrorist mind and the terrorist culture. And I learned a little while ago how our State Department evaluates terrorists, terrorist countries and terrorist organizations. They use violence or threats of violence against non-combatants to achieve ideological or political advantage and they exert that through coercion or threats of coercion. They are the four essential criteria for uh, becoming notified by the U.S. State Department as a terrorist organization, a terrorist country or a terrorist person. And I suddenly realized all of the 
books and articles from reading about the terrorist mine in Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda and Pakistan in the Philippines and Colombia. We don't have to go very far because I realize by that definition I am a terrorist. And that alcoholism and addiction is in fact a domestic form of terrorism because 80% of domestic violence are committed under the influence of alcohol or drugs by alcoholics or addicts. Acts of violence against non-combatants, innocent people to achieve a political or ideological goal of power in the family or in a relationship and implemented through coercion or threats of coercion. They are the criteria and by that criteria I am a terrorist. Because I attacked my children in violence, hit them in the face when they were young and I was grown, sometimes drunk, more often hungover and filled with self-hatred and self-loathing and despair, having dismantled yet another Christmas because the Christmas had not evolved or developed in the idealized way that I wanted to. And all my efforts to make that happen had failed, and then I would attack the people I loved the most. I have attacked wives, too. My past wife and my current wife, whom I love more than anything, I have attacked her about drinking when I was drinking and three years into my sobriety. That was the last time, a long time ago. But she had to get stitches in her forehead and UCLA because of that fist. So I am a terrorist. By official U.S. State Department definitions. I don't have to look very far. I don't need to read books on terrorism. All I have to do is to look in to myself, examine my own behavior, and begin to identify those aspects of me that I despise the most of others. The abuse of power, the exploitation, the predatory nature. I wonder how many people in this room would share my anxiety. The Catholic Church has been assaulted now from inside and outside by the scandals with the priesthood. The exploitation, the predatory exploitation of uh, people under their power. I wonder how many people would share, physicians in the room would share my anxiety about what they are being doing with the statute of limitations with respect to priests. How many of us in this room are worried that they might apply that to ourselves in the medical profession? For I would suggest and imagine that the incidence of abuse of power amongst physicians is many times higher than that among priests. We're immune at the moment, but someday, someplace, sometime, some patient will reach back into the 70s or the 60s or the 50s and bring a suit. And then we will wonder what our profession might do. Will they be so sanctimonious, pompous, with respect to their denigration, 
the Catholic Church, the priests, and how they should be punished and even executed for their vile crimes. When I came, uh, when I was a medical student in Dublin, we used to sit on duty in the Red Cow pub, which was just a half a block away from the hospital, and the porter, he was the intake agent for the hospital, he would call us when somebody came in that needed our attention. And the residents and the students would simply get a special phone, like the President of the United States for calling Russia. That would ring and we'd pick it up. And he'd say, come on over, we've got one for you. And if the patient was drunker than we were, we were allowed to operate on whatever the... There were mostly injury, broken arms and fights and things like that. It was an emergency room. And so when I came to this country, <clears throat> when I was the only intern in a hospital in Baltimore, a rotating intern, I was spinning like a dervish for a whole year. <laughs> but when I was on call, I'd go up to Anderson's Tavern on 33rd Street on Greenmount Avenue on 33rd and I'd sit in there and in my innocence I'd call the operator and I said I'm this Dr. Conroy I'm up at Anderson's if you need me <laughs> so they, the operator eventually of course and I'd be sitting there with my beer drinking away and have five or six and they'd call me and I'd go down and stitch up something I was just in the right when I'd had five or six beers I had to do it sober I was very anxious and I'd stitch a crooked line because incidentally sobriety you know did you ever think of this, that sobriety is the number one cause of relapse? Because <laughs> we get accustomed, our adrenals, every aspect of ourselves get accustomed to living in a crisis-orientated environment where we have to clean up behind us, we create crises, we manage them and we clean them up. And in that sense, we become miraculously expert purveyors of information and manipulators of, manipulators of information. Uh, I know how, for example, to interrogate somebody and they haven't the faintest idea that we're having anything other than a polite conversation. But they are being subjected to intense interrogation, for example, to help me to reconstruct a blackout uh, of the night before or the day before, about which I remember nothing, but it's very important for me to find out what I did so as I can know what action to take, to go back to Ireland, to send flowers, to whatever it might be, because I have no idea uh, what happened. But I can talk to, I used to be able to talk to my wife on a Sunday morning and uh, reconstruct a blackout without her knowing that that was the process that was going on. Talk about Ronald Reagan being a brilliant communicator. I had him left way behind. I was absolutely, in terms of manipulating information, I was brilliant. And I don't need to do that anymore, but 25 years later I still do because these habits die hard. And I always think that the CIA, and you know, we're in a critical time now, instead of going to Yale and Harvard to recruit their spies, should just come here. We should have a CIA booth at Alabama <laughs> next year, because everybody here is trained uh, to uh, operate as a, as, a, as a covert operator. We've been doing it for years. Covert operations are what we're trained to do. That's all we know what to do until we try to unlearn those and set aside the skills that we've developed over 25 years of survival as addicts and alcoholics, cleaning up our messes, mitigating everything, being successful and being failed at the same time. It's an extraordinary... We are a national resource in a way that nobody has yet thought of at a time of great national need. 
so people in Mobile uh, may need to consider this as a possibility. Um, uh, you get commission or sell agents uh, from IDAA. Uh, but it, 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 gives, it gives an image to this idea of living two lives at the same time. Or maybe three or four. Uh, that's what spies have to do. They have to live three or four lives at the same time. Uh, and, and be able to manage their identities and the boundaries between them. And what happens spies when they stop being spies at the age of 65? All the best spies are alcoholics. And believe me, I've done research on that. I'm very interested in that whole area. Most of them are alcoholics. And what happens to them when they stop being spies? They either go to jail, like a lot of alcoholics, or they get depressed when they retire. Because they no longer have use for their skills as covert operators. And I would suggest that a lot of people who come in early, in early sobriety, are depressed because they don't know what to do with their skills as covert operators. I, for example, uh, did all the 12 steps. I came in drunk one Sunday night in 1977, March 6th, totally drunk, bereft. My family was gone. My children were drug addicts. My wife had left, and I was left alone, and I found AA. And I came, and I did all. I was drunk. I don't remember my first meeting very much. Other people do, and I've reconstructed that from what they've told me about it. Uh, but I did the whole of the 12 steps in one day. I went the next night to a Monday night meeting, and I said, I've done the 12 steps in AA, now what do I do? Uh, because and I was making transatlantic phone calls to Ireland, making uh, eighth and ninth uh, step amends uh, at four o'clock in the morning. I, I didn't bother to have to tell my fourth step, which I did after I came back from the meeting still drunk and uh, didn't bother me that there wasn't anyone else to hear. I just went straight to God, having established that early conscious contact, went straight to God. And I literally went to my second meeting, hung over, and asked me, what's next? I've done the 12th step. What do we do next in AA? And they laughed just like you did, and I never did another step for five years. Nor did I ever get a sponsor, but I interviewed a lot of people for sponsorship <laughs> for a person that I began to think of as the great Garrett O., the great Garrido. And I began to become deluded into believing that I had been put on earth by God in Ireland, that I had been exported for scandal, as I was from, from Ireland, related to drink. I had got my person-to-be wife pregnant. Uh, my father was dean of the medical school, and this would be a scandal, so she had to have the baby secretly in London. Uh, in Ireland, uh, contraception was illegal, and impulse control for me was unavailable. That resulted in a... I think it's true. I bet we did a survey here of, of people. We alcoholics, male alcoholics particularly, have children very young. And it has to do, I think, with impulse control rather than anything else. In any event, uh, I was exported here because of scandal. I wasn't an immigrant. I was an export. And uh, came here and that I was at Hopkins and I left there. And I came to uh, United States, to Los Angeles, specifically to get drunk and to survive my, and to come into AA. And at that time, in 1977, the beginnings of conflict were within AA, AA about drugs and alcohol. And should drug addicts be allowed to be in AA because that was for alcoholics only? And Bill Wilson said so. So I was an organization consultant, and I began to think, well, my destiny is God has, this is my mission, to come in to save AA from itself. As Bill Wilson had said, it must be saved from itself. And that I was the new Bill Wilson, the great Garrett O, secretly sent by God 
to save AA from destroying itself. That delusion persisted secretly and silently in me for three years, and I really did believe it. And so, how does such a person find a sponsor? <laughs> I interviewed all the greats in the Los Angeles Basin. They didn't know they were beginning to use my communication skills to bring them to lunch and to pretend that I was asking them for help when in fact they were having job interviews to be the sponsor for the great Garrido who was going to save AA from eating its own tail like the Ouroboros. Uh, and for the first five years I would, I would be invited to speak quite a lot after a year and I'd get a lot. I never done any of the steps except in that first 24 hours but I used to speak at step meetings. And I was like Christ, I had learned from my early training. When Christ was asked was he God, he never actually said yes or no. He kind of would give a parable or something like that. And people would go away bewildered and confused. And they said, well, this guy down the road, and I asked him, was he God? And he told us the story, he must be God. But Jesus never said he was God. And I never said uh, that I hadn't done the steps. And I, I would participate in step meetings from the podium and give graphic descriptions. But I never actually lied. I created this image that I had done the steps, not once, but many times with several people as well. Nothing for five years. And the way I got a sponsor was a man came up to me one night and he said, I'm your sponsor. Like a waiter. I'll be your waiter tonight. He said, my name is Joe and I'm going to be your sponsor. So that was that. And there developed the closest relationship I've ever had with any person in my life. He died tragically before he should have at the age of 72 in surgery uh, nine years later. But he and I became the closest possible friends. And going back to the integration of the extremes, which I believe is the purpose of spirituality. Um, he was as opposite to me as anybody you can imagine. He had pictures of himself with Nixon. He was a former uh, vice president of the Chicago Tribune and quite influential in many ways. And he, he loved Richard Nixon and I hated Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon at that time was my Margaret Thatcher, I mean anything. Uh, to find the Nixon within me would have been, but it was that extraordinary relationship between the opposites uh, that taught me wholeness and to live with the fragmentation and to live with the negative aspects of myself and I've never had anything like that relationship and hopefully I actually never will you know when the Romans were on Saturday mornings in Rome, they used to go around and there'd be a lot of drunks lying out on the ground because they had orgies, as you know, and bacchanalias. And the doctors would go around and the, the technicians with the doctors would go around the corpses and they had little mirrors. And they would put the mirror up to see which who was dead and who wasn't, essentially triage. And if there was breath on the mirror, the tech would say to the doctor, Hic espiritus, here is breath. And that is the origin of spirit, the word spirit, to respire, to inspire, respire in Latin, to breathe. So that's why I say that, that, that spirituality is like health. We have it, it's good health, bad health, but it's there no matter who we are. Hitler was spiritual, Stalin was spiritual, Mao was spiritual, Abila, the horrible predatory murderer in California is spiritual because he is a child of God. And so we inspire, and we are inspired. Something is breathed into us to be inspired with creativity. We expire. To expire, that is an expire. If I had had my stroke and died last night, I would have expired. So there's this whole thing of breathing and connection, and what better connection, meaningful connection with the environment is there than through our breath.
And it's a strange thing. I, I often say, um, and people tease me about it, because I say, you know, I would have been dead long ago if I didn't have five fatal diseases to keep me alive. And that, for me, is a spiritual statement because I had tuberculosis when I was 13. I got alcoholism when I was 14 or 15, and I've had it, obviously, ever since. Uh, when I was about uh, my early 40s, I had rectal cancer. And then in my uh, 50s, um, I got primary pulmonary hypertension, which is a disease for which there is no cure except a heart-lung transplant. That was in 1989, and the average, uh, I was told, and looking at the literature, the time from diagnosis to death is 2.7 years, and I was diagnosed in 1988. So with all of these diseases, I'm a bit of a freak in that nobody understands how I can survive them. And then about five years ago, I got diabetes type 2. And so every number of years, and that's why I say I'd be dead long ago if I didn't have these diseases to keep me alive, because... Well, it's only when I'm challenged by these kinds of things that I'm willing to go the whole way and find the Eichmann within me. And it's only by finding the worst that I can find my navigational path of humanity somewhere in the middle, being less than God and being more than the beasts, more or less. But I am, I am, I have done, as I say, inhuman beastly things, abused my power as a physician, as a parent, as a husband, as a person, many, many times. Many of you know me as a person who often doesn't return calls, who gets reports in late. And these are these are not attributes of a spiritual person, in my opinion. And yet I have to deal with these faults and imperfections all the time. My life often appears to be the continuous making of an amend. I just should have, do you have a card? I give it out and it makes the amend either for the past, the present, or the future insult or imperfection that will complicate your life. My uh, children, uh, for example, uh, both of them uh, were addicts. I heard Jerry Moe say that if I'd had dinner just once a week with my children in the family that they wouldn't have turned out. He says there's new research that says if you have dinner with your family once a week, there's less risk of your children turning out to be addicts or alcoholics or otherwise badly. And I said, oh my God, that's all I have to do to have dinner once a week with my children and they wouldn't have turned into terrible addicts and criminal alcoholics and all of the things that they did. But neither would they have 16 years and 15 years of good sobriety right now, this moment I speak. I was the first one in my tribe to get sober. I come from, as I say, a family of alcoholics. My mother was a falling down alcoholic. We lived a life of delusion and dishonesty, pretending that she wasn't. And I have brought scandal in my family by publicly stating in, in, in Ireland and in writing that my mother was an alcoholic. And that has brought scandal in my family who say that I have exposed our respectable family uh, by communicating to the public that my mother was an alcoholic, which is one of the most important things that ever occurred to me that that was the case. So my wife, who was in Al-Anon for seven years before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, has now got 20 years of recovery herself. And our little granddaughter, Kalina, whom some of you know about, who ran away all last year, got involved in sex, drugs, and rock and roll at the age of 16. And we sent her to a spiritual uh, program in Arizona where she learned to survive for 
in the wilderness for six weeks in a very spiritual environment. And that turned out to be a boot camp training camp for running away because it taught her how to survive on the road six months later when she did run away. She ran away with three other kids and they were all caught within two days and she stayed out for two months before she was arrested and put in jail. And she has now got eight months of sobriety. She's in a school in Arizona and coming around and I think her life will be saved. It's important that it would because her mother died by gunshot wound of her own on her 31st birthday. She was an addict who blew her head off on her 31st birthday and left my, my granddaughter and my, my son um, to fend for themselves. Uh, Hugh O'Connor, my, uh, Carol O'Connor is my sec- was my second cousin and uh, Hugh, as many of you know, also committed suicide um, eight years ago and uh, Carol followed him into the grave uh, last year. He didn't die really of a, a myocardial infarction. He died of the death of his son, which he never recovered from, as if one ever does. So alcoholism has deeply affected my life, my family, in every possible way. Um, so it makes sense uh, for me. Uh, so I had a brother uh, who got sober three years after I did and died sober from cancer in New Orleans. And I have two brothers who are still drinking, and I don't know what to do. There isn't anything I can do except do what I'm doing, stay sober as well and as long as I can because this is a program of attraction. One of those brothers is uh, very brilliant. They're both brilliant. Uh, One is extraordinarily brilliant and a very well-known public person. And years ago, uh, he wanted to lose weight and I sent him the Atkins diet. Um, And he went on the Atkins diet and and a couple of years later he had to have open heart surgery and he wrote me a letter accusing me of an attempt to murder him. That's the kind of family I grew up in. He said, you're a doctor. You know our family history. You should have known that that diet would lead, would, 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 would put me at risk for death, and it did. So that's the, the relationships that, that pervade our alcoholic family, and I suppose uh, what, what has been achieved, two people sober and two people further generation down and another generation down from that, sober for the first time in hundreds of years' history of our family, um, is all due to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, going back to um, Ireland and that flag and me here in the United States in exile. I, I've never really belonged except in AA, um, in exile from the place I love. Years ago, I was uh, working in Ireland and I went one night by one o'clock driving home to my family home from the place where I was working and there was a, there had been an IRA or some kind of bank robbery that day and the police were out and they were in bed there there was a roadblock and I took three or four cars in front of me and uh, I drove up and I was kind of tired and the policeman looked in and and a big tall police he looked in the front window and I heard hmm and he came around to the side we drive on the right hand side there and I pulled down the window and he looked in and he said hmm you're looking very doleful he said I said, doleful, officer, that's a very strange word. I'm not doleful. I said, I'm just tired of being working all night. I want to get home. Hmm, working, is it? He said, how much have you had to drink? And I said, ha, well, officer, he said, actually, I haven't had anything to drink for about four years. He said, hmm, that must be what's the matter with you, he said. 
they're the pillar of the state, unable to know what to do with the sober driver at one o'clock in the morning. His manual gave him instructions. And, uh, but really, uh, just just to to end up in a in a way, um, you know, it's what I going back to what I said about ego in the beginning. Sometimes it's the most dangerous thing for me to either hear or to imagine or to buy my own press, the reviews, the icon, the guru, and all of that, or to be Irish. When I was at my university in Los Angeles for years, that's the most dangerous place I can be, because if I go back there, they tell me, Gareth. And I do, I'm part-time, I used to be full-time, part-time. I say, you were never alcoholic. You were just Irish. And you used to drink as much as you did so as we didn't have to drink as much as we wanted to. And furthermore, they said, you were much greater fun in those days. You are now going round and preaching about drinking and religion and spirituality and all that shit. You know, and here we are examining the brain and lining up together the Nobel Prize for genetic research and alcoholism, and there you are. And you were never an alcoholic. He said, we remember you know, the wonderful stories you used to tell and the arguments you used to get into. And we remember the brilliant talks you used to give at the Southern California Psychiatric. And I said, but I don't. <laughs> See, it's very hard. And I used to be enraged at that, and now I understand it, because we're so clever. We are so alien. We are so covert that we assume these magical identities to divert and distract attention away from the, not the people so much we are, but the people we think we are. The horrible internalized self-images of cruelty and destruction that are internalized and gestating in there and for which we have to encrust with shame. So that shame and anger and resentment that Gordy was talking about last night are always there to keep us from feeling our true feelings. Think of the last time you were ashamed. And can you feel anything but shame when you are ashamed? Shame encases us in a sort of block of emotional paralysis where we can feel nothing except wanting to be somewhere else, wanting the earth to swallow us up so that we do not have to be authentic and meet the eye gaze of some other human being because we feel ourselves at that moment less than human. Even for minor violations, for minor failures to meet up the standard, we feel the shame and it encases us and blocks us from ourselves. And once I am blocked from myself, from my feelings, and the three things that block me from being in touch with my own feelings for what they really are, are shame, anger, and resentment particularly, and envy. When I am envying you for what you are and what I would like to have without necessarily doing the work to get it or acquire it, then I am blocked from my feeling of failure. When I am ashamed because I haven't met up to the standard that you want me to or somebody else does, then I am blocked from my feelings because I am, can't deal with the idea that I have once again failed. So shame, anger, resentment, which is resentment is just the feeling of anger and envy over and over and over and over again, long since the time passed. They are what blocks me from me and block me from meeting the God within me, which is even harder for me to identify and embrace than the Margaret Thatcher or the Eichmann or the object of contempt. I can deal with that more easily than I can deal with the godliness in me. 
I can't deal with praise. I can't deal with people speaking well of me. I always have to do the equivalent of flagellation to mortify myself if people speak well of me. I yearn for success. I yearn for belonging. But when I belong, I do something to be expelled. I yearn for success. But when I am given it, I often, so often in my life, have done something to destroy it, to deface it, to insult it, and to deprive me of that success. And that is my cycle. That is my cycle. And what has delivered me, to some extent, to understand that cycle is purely the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and to know that no longer can I stand in judgment of my life because there are too many good things that have happened to me and too many good things that have happened to people who have had things to do with me that I can no longer subject them to a negative judgment. And so gradually, it's not the bad things that I have any trouble with. It's the good things that are so difficult and painful for me to accept. And I had no idea really you know, what I would talk about here today because I was so, as I say, petrified and so paralyzed by the honesty of our wonderful speakers yesterday and throughout this conference and comparing myself and my poor words and really not knowing, not having enough trust. The 11th step as we know, is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, seeking only knowledge of us, his knowledge of us, and our will to carry that out. And I tried desperately between the third step, turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understand him. And uh, that 11th step to eliminate and, 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 and deflate my ego. That is the one... You know, Bill Wilson says that the, the, the essential task of recovery is deflation of the alcoholic ego. And that is certainly true for me. And after some time in recovery, my alcoholic ego, I have it, it's like an automobile airbag. It's still there in all its components. But it's stuffed away somewhere. But it can emerge at unpredictable moments like at airline hotel registration desks. When there's a glitch on the bill and I'm being asked to pay more, or they didn't, they overcharged me on the minibar, something very important, you know, for my diet Pepsis. Uh, I feel the need to say that in, the, in here in this company. And, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I'll explode! I mean, I just, don't you know who I am? And I've got this arrangement and, what I, and I can explode like that and people in the line behind me, like the automobile airbag, people in the back seat get enveloped with it, you know, and the clerk and I am. And then, well, now I can stuff it back in. So it only lasts about seven seconds. And they're totally amazed because now they have a polite, respectable person willing to cooperate in any way. Years ago, that used to last weeks. And other people would suffer, the taxi man, the porters, my wife, everyone would suffer for weeks. So there's progress here. There's considerable progress in uh, my recovery by measured by the extent to which my ego inflates or deflates uh, and under what circumstances. That's how I measure my recovery. Uh, as I said earlier on, I don't know what spirituality is. It's, un it's impossible to comprehend or understand. It is. It is a way of being. And how can you understand being? It's a mystery. All I know is that being human is to be imperfect 
And all I know is that the great Irish writer Samuel Beckett had a wonderful phrase in one of his books. He said, Ah! Doesn't matter. Try again. Sail again. But next time, sail better. He said, It's a wonderful... He, Beckett, read his works because they are so so consistent with the sort of form of alcoholic thinking that is known to us so well. Well, I want to finish up a uh, little bit, thank goodness, before time. Uh, because spirituality is so difficult to convey, impossible to convey, um, I sometimes do that through music. And I like to do it here through music, um, very briefly, to end my talk on this spiritual morning at the end of this wonderful uh, healing, nurturing uh, convention of alcoholics and codependents and our loved ones. But thanks to everybody and thanks uh, to the gym and the committee uh, for um, having me here uh, to help me in my journey to recovery. I've learned a great deal from meditating on what might be said here at this podium. Really a great deal. And I've learned an enormous amount just being around here in the last few days. Um, because 9-11 is coming up uh, soon because it has so much impact on all of us I'd like to play first a song that Willie Nelson played immediately after that in one of his television uh, shows with all the stars that he had and he played uh, the hymn to America in a very wonderful folksy way that I'd never heard before I'd like to play that and then after that, I'd like to play a song of exile. You'll know it. It's an Irish song. And because I am an exile, and I think we are all exiles in alcoholism, because we are separate from the general stream of the population. We know about what it's like to be in the stream of abuse, and they may have been in the stream of abuse themselves, but they don't know. And we should be tolerant and patient uh, with people who are not alcoholic and have not been forced, like I have, um, to the wisdom and the nurturance and the healing power of the 12 steps and the, the being tempted and, and to come out of my isolation and to take risks with other people in the safety of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only place in the world that I feel really safe. So I'll play that, the Song of Exile, and then finally a song, an American song of survivors, and we are survivors. But more than that, I think the 12 steps allow us in the, in the, in the, in the spectrum of roles of abuse, there's the perpetrator, which I am, domestic violence and other forms of abuse of power, of witnessing, I witnessed my parents attack each other. Not often, but several times. A victim. I was a victim of predatory, um, mild molestation in my school and victim of severe capital punishment. But I'm also a survivor. But I think that due to the 12 steps, most people go as far as just being a survivor. The 12 steps invite us to a terrain of the victor's circle where we can actually be victors and not only survive the trauma of our lives and our addiction, uh, severe post-traumatic stress disorder of recovery, but learn from it and be better people from it. 
and grow in it spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and sometimes even financially without guilt or shame. So, here goes. Uh, in thinking about 9-11, I would like also not to just acknowledge us here in the United States. But my wish and my prayer with this hymn is to include the perpetrators of 9-11. They are also children of God. <clears throat> Their perpetration is based on the same rage and envy and deprivation that I have so often felt in my life. They're not evil. They do bad things. So I include Osama bin Laden and his comrades and all the people of the earth in this hymn which is being played now on behalf of the people in the nation who have been hurt. And how many times have we been hurt by others and what have we done as a response to that hurt as individuals in our families? It seems to me there's a meaningful connection between the principles of recovery and the 12 steps and what is going on in the larger scene if we only would think of our own hurt and our own perpetration and our own abuse of power amongst the people we love the most, principally against ourselves. I'm not only a terrorist, I'm also a suicide bomber. Because in my terrorism of my family and others, I too have suffered as much or often more than they. Thank you and God bless.